This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, o Lord. Jesus said to his disciples, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. At about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, now call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, o Christ. Please be seated. For many years, I taught the parable you just heard as part of a high school course on justice, and it never failed to elicit howls of righteous indignation from a broad spectrum of students. How could a good and just God be so manifestly unfair? On the one hand, the pro-labor students would start to chant equal pay for equal work arguing that the landowner's differential pay scale was inequitable and would undermine worker solidarity by treating differently situated workers the same. Then the pro-management students would stand up and criticize the landowner's payout as wildly inefficient and wasteful, one that would inevitably lead to a classic free rider problem, namely, once workers know that they will get paid the same wage no matter what time they show up, everyone will be incentivized to show up later rather than earlier, since it would be foolish to work a whole day in the brutal sun for the same pay. You can see how the debate goes. And of course, were this parable intended to be a model for how to run a small business, each of these critiques might have some merit. But as any student of Jesus' parables knows, these stories are neither intended to be interpreted literally, nor are they practical recipes for daily life, much less business planning. 
Rather, they function to provoke us into new ways of experiencing God. As the preacher Clarence Jordan once said, when Jesus tells a parable, he lights a stick of dynamite and covers it with a story. I like that. Among the many things that I love about this parable is how it plays on and brings to the surface the very human tendency to be dissatisfied with what we have and instead to crave as one commentator on this passage, David Lowe's, puts it, there are lots of ways to read the story of the fall in Genesis, but on one level, it's primarily a story about how through our own insecurity and lack of trust, we come to understand and assess our lives, not through the abundance we have been given by God, but instead by what we feel we still lack. Because of this gnawing sense of lack, we define ourselves over and against others, comparing and begrudging their good fortune because it is not our good fortune. In this sense, the parable is a commentary of sorts on the last two commandments of the Decalogue. And I know as good Lutherans, you know what they are. They have to do with coveting coveting what belongs to our neighbor. In the parable, if the other groups of workers had never come along in the story, the early morning workers would have been perfectly content to receive their daily living wage. There's no question about that. All would have been right with the world. It's only when we introduce others into the story, others who seem to make out better, that all, excuse me, hell and it's not that the early workers didn't get what they bargained for, right? The landowner, he points this out. He keeps his promise to pay them the daily wage. It's just that they become unhappy when others receive the same as they did for less sweat. Like little children, we are happy when our parents are generous with us, but we scream unfair as soon as they are overly generous with our siblings. And for this reason, the story of Jonah is a perfect companion piece to the parable. Jonah can't stand the fact that God's boundless mercy wreaks havoc with his own hard-won righteous life. It is really rather simple as far as Jonah's concerned. The Ninevites don't deserve mercy, and Jonah literally cannot live with the fact that God freely chooses to extend his mercy beyond Jonah's narrow conception of what is right. And even when God tries to remind Jonah of who is creator and who is creature by first giving Jonah the comforting shade of a bush and then withdrawing it to literally expose Jonah to the elements, Jonah still refuses to let go of his anger and resentment. So tied is he to his own sense of fairness and justice. Now the Lutheran in me, and he's coming out more and more, <laughs> the Lutheran in me cannot help but point out that this parable and Jonah's story illustrate perfectly 
how deeply embedded in the human psyche is our sense of works righteousness. We desperately want to cling to the notion that we can somehow win God's favor by leading a righteous life like Jonah, or by working long hours in the vineyard like the first group of workers. We not only want our due, but more fundamentally, we want the power to differentiate ourselves from others before God. And if I'm honest, I always try to be honest, we clergy and other religious types may be especially prone to this hazard. Publicly, we seek to present ourselves as selfless servants of Christ, but inside lingers a hope that all our good and godly work will someday pay off. Although we would never say it out loud like the disciples James and John do, we secretly are holding out for a seat at the right hand of the king. At least we're tempted by that. And I think all of us can relate to that feeling. But the message of the gospel is otherwise. Grace is not tied to merit or other human constructions of just desert. The power of grace explodes all of our attempts to control it. Grace is freely given to all in equally full measure. Indeed, if we go back to the parable for a second, we can see this powerful and beautiful message of grace come through the story if we just change our perspective a bit. Rather than focusing on the individual classes of workers in the story and their competing senses of just compensation, keep your eye on the landowner. For what is remarkable about the story is not the narrative of differential pay. That's a diversion. The hidden heart of the story is the landowner's relentless pursuit of those without work and his desire to give each of them a place in his vineyard. So let's hear the story again. At the crack of dawn, it is the landowner who goes out to recruit the early morning workers. They don't come to him to apply for work. Rather, he seeks them out and gives them what they don't have, a livelihood. The same thing is true at 9 in the morning. The landowner returns to town to seek out those who are idle and in want. And again, at noon and at 3 and at 5, in each case, it is the landowner who is taking the initiative. He is the one who's continually running back and forth into town to find anyone and everyone who is in need. You see, this is not, this is the joke about teaching this parable in a justice class. It's really not about justice. It's a parable about invitation, hospitality, and boundless generosity. In human economies, we obsess over getting what we deserve, giving to each what he or she has earned. In the divine economy, God obsesses over making sure that everyone is included and provided for according to her needs. Human economies are built upon free market models of the survival of the fittest, where the weak are often left to die. 
The divine economy is built upon a grace where the weak are put at the front of the line. Human economies inevitably engender a sense of covetousness, what Socrates describes as the ulcer of the soul, a constant desire to want what we don't have. The divine economy liberates us to stop worrying about our own needs in order to lift up others. In short, when Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven is like this landowner's vineyard, he is giving us a glimpse of a God who pursues us with a desire that never ends, who gives us everything we need, and who wants us to live not for ourselves, but to live like he does for those on the margins of the vineyard. Now, as we reread this parable today, and hopefully hear its message anew, I cannot help but note that the gap between the rich and the poor today is greater than ever. While the 1% continue to accumulate more and more wealth, 37.9 million Americans live in poverty. 37.9 million. And we plainly have the resources to eliminate poverty in this country, given our GDP. We simply choose not now, don't get me wrong, Jesus' parable provides no easy answer to the many complicated questions of our national, let alone our global, economic life. And it is naive, I think, to try to use it as some sort of blueprint for a utopian political community. Jesus, after all, told the parable not to offer an economic model but rather to startle us into new ways of experiencing God's mercy so that we might share that mercy through fresh patterns of generous living. But it's up to us to figure out how to do that. The key, I think, is always to remember that we could be the one living on the margins, the person who is without work, the person who doesn't have enough to eat, the person who doesn't have a place to live, the person who is alone and forgotten. There but the grace of God go we. Wouldn't we want to be extended the grace of a daily wage, a gesture of welcome and hospitality? And isn't it time that we let go of the insidious and erroneous belief that what we have earned and deserve are the blessings that we have, while others just haven't worked hard enough or are not quite so deserving, the sense of merit, isn't it time to let that go? Sooner or later, most of us, I think, discover that the best of our relationships are based not so much on our wonderful qualities, but on someone else's patience, forgiveness, and willingness to accept us for who we are, warts and all. Just so with God. God loves us in the end, not because we are so wonderful, hardworking, upright, or righteous, 
God loves us because he chooses to love us. And absurdly enough, God chooses to love us irrespective of what we have done or haven't done. As C.S. Lewis so concisely put it, God loves us not because we are good. We are good because God loves us. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved.